Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It will be the lowest carbon footprint stadium built in the world in history since the Romans invented concrete, I like to say, because that's actually true. guys welcome to another episode with me jimmy doherty of on jimmy's farm this is the podcast that tries to take the stress out of your environmental angst and give us all a little slice of the good life now i've popped up to see some of my breeding girls some of my breeding sows here there's a group of lovely big gloucestershire old spots and they're in with a, a handsome hunk of a boar look at you hey this is basically like a love match. So we let the boar in with the girls here. And there's a lot of sniffing goes on. There's a lot of nudging. And the boar starts to chomp, begins to throff at the mouth. And the girls love that. And they can sense all these sex hormones. There's a little aeroplane just flying overhead, thinking, what's going on down there? There's a man down there with a randy boar and three eager sows. We wouldn't be wrong, pilot. Yeah, so he's nudging her now. And that idea of he puts his nose underneath her stomach and nudges her, nudges her. And that's telling her that, you know, I'm interested. He's testing if she's in season. Some people believe that nudging helps stimulate more eggs to be released down the fallopian tube. I don't know if that is actually true or not, but uh, well, that's what I was told once by an old pigman. Hey, girls. Right, leave you to it. So on today's episode on Jimmy's farm. I've got a chap on who's really interesting. He's one of these guys that doesn't stand still and he just swims against the current. His name is Del Vince, he's OBE, and he is a British green energy industrialist. He's also a vegan, so I'm not sure how keen he'll be on the idea of me breeding you guys for sausages. But I've met Del before and he's always truly fascinating. And he gives so many interesting solutions to our climate crisis. Now, amongst other things, is running a, a telephone company and all sorts of stuff, a green electricity company. He runs a football team that is totally vegan. So all the footballers, while they're training, will eat vegan food. When you're in the stands, there's vegan food. And even the pitch is organic which is incredible. You know, he's a man that lives by his word. He's a real doer. Enjoy the chat and I'll catch up with you later. So, Dale, thanks very much for doing this. I much appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. 
first podcast I've ever done. I've been on podcasts before, but I've never had my own podcast. And the idea behind it was to talk about environmental issues, a little bit about the good life, what people do to get their little slice of the good life, how we can lead better and greener lives. So I thought having you on to talk about what you do, because you are a remarkable individual in lots of different ways. Because when it comes to the environment, there's a lot of people that have opinions about things and they will often, you know, get up and talk about things and say how bad the world is and we are in a bad place. But you actually do something about it and you embrace it in a way that I think is really relevant to everyone's lives. And one is mobile phones and the use of electricity because you've got a phone company and you've got an ecotricity, which is an eco-electricity company, and also football. Because sport is massively powerful and influences a lot of people's lives. So tell me a bit about your football team, because it is quite unique and remarkable. Yeah, it's called Forest Green Rovers, and it's my local football club, really. I rescued it about 10 years ago now from bankruptcy and almost certain relegation. And it just began as a rescue mission just to help out a football club, didn't really think it through or anything like that. And immediately bumped in a whole set of things that needed to be changed and very quickly realized that what I needed to do was change so much that we'd be creating a green football club, new kind of football club. We brought the principles from Ecotricity across pursuing the issues of energy, transport and food, the biggest three impacts from everybody's life. And that's true of individuals, businesses and sports clubs. And, you know, we applied those. So we've got like green electricity running the stadium, electric car charging points and electric cars, in fact, at the club and a vegan match day menu. The thing that made us most famous, I would say, infamous in the beginning and famous now. Is the aspect of veganism and the vegan food. And I've been to your stadium and I've met your lovely chef and tasted the food and it is absolutely delicious. And what's really interesting is that the players themselves not all of them are vegan, but when they are there, they will eat vegan food. And I think a lot of them have become converts because of the things you've been doing. Yeah, that's right. Every year, two or three of our players will go vegan themselves in their whole life. You're right. Other than that, it's just when we feed people, we feed them vegan food. It doesn't matter if it's players, staff or visiting fans. The food we put on is entirely plant-based. It's about taking responsibility, actually, for the things that you do. And a bunch of our fans have gone veggie and vegan as well. I mean, consistently over the years, more and more fans have just adopted it. And and it's because the food is surprisingly good. You know, there are a lot of stereotypes around about plant-based food. And when you can get past that and try it yourself, it's surprisingly good. Veganism seems to really hit the mainstream. It seems to be everywhere now. I mean, it's worth pointing out that most of the world is vegan. You know, it's the kind of natural, normal diet of most of the world. And tell me about the vegan diet with your players, because I've spoken to athletes before about diets and a lot of them that aren't vegan say they couldn't do it without meat and the protein. Does it have any effect on your players at all? Yeah, but only a good one. I mean, there's no shortage of protein in plants. Where does anybody think animals get protein from? They get it from plants and then we get it from animals. But they're like a middleman in the equation. We don't need them for protein. So we're not short of protein. I would say the benefits of a vegan diet to our players and to athletes generally are lack of soft tissue injuries. That's the really big one. And then you get faster recovery from training and playing sessions and less fatigue, more energy. And, you know, these are facts that athletes in all sports around the world 
are affirming for us. You know, that's their experience of going plant-based. Sergio Aguero was one of the first movers in football, player from Man City, of course. And uh, he was going vegan during the season precisely to avoid soft tissue injuries. This is five, six years ago. But we've seen it ourselves as a football club. Which is really interesting, isn't it? Because you, 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 if, if you're seeing those results, it's something that you'd think that other clubs would take on board then. Yeah, it's coming. I mean, it's definitely coming. And, and say elite athletes in all sports around the world are adopting the diet because they see and feel the benefits for themselves. My favorite anecdotal piece of evidence for this would have been four years ago or something. We played Tranmere at Wembley in a playoff final to get into League Two. And we'd played about 50 games already that season and we had no soft tissue injuries at all in the squad. Tranmere had seven or something like that. We won the game 3-1, but we went into that with a fully fit squad and I put that down a large part to our diet. Right, yeah. When you're doing it and you're seeing the results firsthand. So owning this club, were you always interested in football? Is football a big passion of yours or was it something you wanted to save because it was the local team or did you see a business opportunity? It was the first two. So, like, I've been a football fan since I was a kid. I was mad for it as a kid. I followed England as an adult. Never had a football club. Never went to see Forest Green Rovers. And, you know, when I did go to see them at their invite, I thought it was a lovely place, lovely people. The club was 120 years old. And it, so they say, just needed a little bit of money to get through the summer. And I thought, why not, you know? I could do this, so I will. Didn't think about what that might involve. A few months later, they were saying, look, you need to be chairman or the club's going to fold. I didn't want to do that. I was too busy, but I didn't like the choice, really, of seeing it fold. So I said, how hard can it be? We'll just do this. But never thought about what it would take to run a club or what opportunity there might be there until I began day one, bumped into the fact that we were selling or serving red meat to our players and thought uh, absolutely couldn't abide that. We stopped that on day one and then bumped into a whole series of things and very quickly rationalised that we'd have to create a new kind of football club, a green kind, speak to a new kind of audience, one relatively untouched by these messages. In fact, we definitely wouldn't be preaching to the choir and that made it a little bit more appealing as well because you can have more impact that way, you know. And so we just got started, really, and found it. It's been the most incredible platform, way beyond my wildest imaginations. You know, we hooked up with the UN about four years ago. We're the first sports club in the world to go carbon neutral under their auspices. I'm a climate champion for the UN. They began a program, global program, to get sports bodies and clubs all over the world to do the same kind of stuff to pursue zero carbonness. And we've got a global fan base, 100 different groups in 20 different countries of the world. You know, we're a tiny little village football club playing in League Two. And, you know, we've got a global reputation and a global platform. When we look at our media impressions annually, you know, it, it runs to the many billions, which is just incredible. So it's been a fantastic way to communicate. We can see the effect on our own fans as well, which is wonderful. It's phenomenal because when we talk about the club, we talk about the headliner. It's always about the vegan diet and the vegan food that you serve. And I remember saying to one of your coaches, what do the other teams, what do the other supporters shout at you? What is it? It's like, where's your sausage roll or something like that? But it goes beyond the food because the fact that like the pitch is managed under organic guidelines. You've got an organic pitch, haven't you? You capture rainwater. Yeah, it's an organic pitch. That means no chemicals. We don't just capture rainwater. We capture any water that falls on the pitch. We capture it from underneath the pitch and we use it again. And that means also we capture the nutrients that we put on the pitch and we reuse those. And that's a very simple thing to do. And everything that we've done at Club is really simple. It's one of our key messages, you know. There's so much you can do if you just want to. Yeah. But you've taken all these principles into a world where 
environmental issues really didn't have a voice. You know, often people go, I don't want to hear about that. I'm here to watch the match. But you've made it part of life, which the environment has to be. Talking about the environment is always portrayed as a negative thing on TV. I must sit and watch this because it's important. But if it's interwoven within our lives, it's always present. It's always there. But the interesting thing is with sport is that if you're using it, you are using it. It's a real force for good. But often it is used by fast food brands, fizzy drink companies, even some of the biggest clubs are owned by very rich oil states. That's right, and airlines. <laughs> and airlines. And yeah. How do you feel about that? Because you are the odd boy in the class when it comes to the football clubs then. <laughs> That's my natural territory, so I feel good about that. <laughs> I mean, we call it sport washing, don't we? This is what's happening. Regimes are buying football clubs to sport wash their images. You've got airlines, fast food joints, gambling firms as well, you know, dominating the sport of football and other sports. And, you know, I do think it's wrong, but yeah, we are using sport for a different purpose and we've found that it works. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that to do it in the world you've done it in speaks volumes. I think the simple issues of even, you know, just people just looking at the pitch and go, oh, do you know what? I'm going to do that on my lawn at home. I'm not going to put weed killer on it. You know, it has a massive effect on the pollinating insects that are flying into the garden. All these little things are so, so important. And tell us about your plans for the eco park. This is to build a brand new stadium. Is that right? Yeah, a bit more than that. It's a 100 acre site on junction 13 of the M5, which is the gateway to Stroud. And it, it was sparked by the very early realization that Forest Green's current home is really limited. It's a very difficult place to get to, top of a steep hill. On a busy match day, we actually have to bring in tankers of water because the water main can't cope. We have a shortage of electricity. We have no parking. You know, all kinds of things are, are not right about it. And our ambition is to be a championship football club. And so aligned with that, we were looking for a new home almost 10 years ago, found this place and have been pursuing it through planning probably for the last seven or eight years. We've got outline consent. We held an architect's competition with a very simple brief to have the greenest football stadium that had ever been built. Zaha Deeds Practice won that competition with a wonderful all-wooden concept, and it will be the lowest carbon footprint stadium built in the world in history since the Romans invented concrete, I like to say, because that's actually true. Wow, that's phenomenal. So a wooden structure... How's that with the fire regulations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because you know what planning's like. It's a nightmare. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's a non-issue from a fire point of view. You know, all kinds of buildings are being built with wood now. High-rise buildings are being built with wood. It's a fantastic material. And it's engineered to be fire retardant. And it's actually safer in a fire than steel. And this is a counterintuitive point that people aren't aware of in a fire a steel beam will reach a certain temperature and collapse a wooden beam will char over a period of hours and on top of that modern football stadia are designed to be emptied in a matter of minutes a handful of minutes and you know the classic stadia where there have been fires were not like that of course smoking is banned in stadiums as well so you don't have the inherent kind of uh, ignition risk of that habit there's so much that's changed in the world and wood is actually safer than steel yeah, that's incredible. And um, when would the completion date be? When would we be able to come and see a match? About two years after we start. That's the easy answer. <laughs> but the more hard question is, when are we going to start? Yeah, when, uh, when are you going to start? So we start some archaeology last week on the site. There's a Roman villa there, ironically, since, you know, I, I like to think 
of the Romans in the context of our claim. And that's the precursor to building some training pitches. So we're going to start with the training ground. The whole site itself is going through the local plan review process, should come out in the autumn. With any luck, we'll be starting work, I would think, within two years' time. Wow, that is incredible. And is there anyone else in the world of football that inspires you in terms of green credentials? No. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite hard to find anyone that has gone to the lengths that you have. And so now you've put your flag in the sand and say that this can be done, this should be done. Do you hope that sports can become more sustainable in the future? Oh, definitely. And I see it coming as well. You know, Hibs in the Scottish Prem are a good example of a club that have embraced this agenda properly. You know, they've got genuine ambition. And there's a bunch of Premier League clubs have signed up to the UN programme, Sport for Climate Action. You know, so they're on the path. And we can see it in all other sports, you know, American football, golf, Formula One, you know. Sport has become aware of its importance. It's not more or less responsible for the climate crisis than any industry is, but it's got an attribute that no industry has, and that's its platform to influence people. And therefore, I think it's incumbent on sport to use that platform to help encourage people to change how they live. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So owning this club is interesting because sport, as I said, a massive effect. But where did it all begin for you? Because you're obviously a man, you want to make positive change. You want to improve the planet and the outlook of the world. Where did it start? Where was the seed planted in you? I think it may have always been with me, but, you know, I recall my first conscious eco-thought as a kid, probably age 12 or 13 or something like that. And I was looking at the cars around me on the road. I thought there were a lot of them, but you know, that was a long time ago. We're talking in the 70s. There weren't as many as there are now. And I was aware that a car had about 10 gallons of fuel in it. And the precious nature of energy, I was a bit of a mad inventor as a kid. I used to like to make things, and I powered them with batteries from back in the day, which didn't last very long, and then you had to throw them away. So energy was kind of precious to me as a kid. And I looked at all the cars I could see. I tried to imagine how many there were in the country, how much fuel they held between them, and where that came from. 
And crucially, when it would run out, because nobody talked about that. And I knew that it had to run out. And it just seemed wrong to me to live in that way. And so was that then taken on through school and, and what you studied? Because you're quite active in terms of activism. You wanted to be heard. <laughs> well, not at that point, I think. I, you know, I just got out of school as soon as I could because it wasn't a good experience for me, school. And then I, you know, I felt great that I finally had my time back to myself. When I left school, I was age 15. It was the start of the summer. I felt like I got my life back for the first time since I could remember. I felt like I'd been let out of prison. I remember it was a really happy day. And then I went off looking for what it was I really wanted to do because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'd only bumped into things that I knew I didn't want to do. And that's how I think you tend to find out to a degree. And then a few years later, I hit the road. You know, I dropped out completely, lived off grid in a series of buses and trucks and things like that, mostly in Britain, partly in Europe. And I did that for about a decade before I dropped back in to try and build a big windmill, having used little windmills to power my life and all that kind of stuff. And that was the beginning of ecotricity in the early 90s. Wow. So it's those, not wilderness years, but those elements where you removed yourself from the education process, which for so many people, it doesn't work for them because of the constraints or treating young people a bit like they're sometimes like in a factory with just the same press for every single one. And then traveling around the UK, in Europe, in buses, in vans, getting close to nature, getting closer to nature, living off grid, was that really important for you to connect with the planet, with nature? It was, and it was more than that as well. It was about turning my back on all of the things that we're told that we're supposed to do. You know, go further in education, start a career, begin a pension, you know, work until the day that you're old enough to retire and then only finally get your life back when you get to retire. All of that seemed madness to me. And I wanted to find it a different way to live. And I couldn't afford to do it living in town because, you know, with no money, it's just not possible. And I found that living on the road, I could do that. And I became very self-reliant in terms of doing things for myself. And that was another important life lesson for me. You know, it seemed to me that we're all very busy at a job earning money in order to pay other people to do the things we haven't got any time to do ourselves, you know, which is all right to a point. But I wanted to do it differently. So I learned an awful lot of life skills, self-reliance in uh, electrical work, plumbing, renewable energy, mechanics, welding, all kinds of stuff. And I, it gave me a and maybe I already partly had it, but it definitely cemented in that case an absolute can-do attitude. You know, there wasn't anything if I wanted to do it that I didn't think I could do. That's really interesting, that, because with I work with quite a lot of young people. And when you give them the tools, when you give them the knowledge to control the environment around or to create something or to do something, like it could be something like from reading the weather to building a fence or whatever it is. There's something really powerful about that. You know, the ability to say, with these two hands, I can create something. I can forge something. I can do something. You know, there's something wonderful about that. Because so much of our life now seems to be social media or whatever. But having something very tangible. Because no matter what happens, you know, you can wire up a plug. You can sort the plumbing out or fix the drains or put in a septic or whatever it is. Those skills are really important. Yeah, I think they are. And, you know, to a degree, we've lost them, haven't we? I mean... What are the chances you could fix a modern car if it breaks down? Well, I think close to zero, you know. But an old-fashioned car with a carburetor and spark plugs and stuff like that, you know, I could fix that. You know, I could fault find. You just look for the fundamentals. You need a spark, you need compression, you need fuel. And if you've got all those three things, it should work. No chance with a modern car. You need a computer, actually, to diagnose what the problem is, you know. And, and that does make us distant from technology from the things around us in our lives we're 
powerless to actually affect them, fix them, and that kind of stuff. It's important. There's something really rewarding about it. During the sort of the first lockdown, there's uh, a friend of mine, Max, young lad, that there's about three or four of us, and we all sort of look after him. And I said, well, let's build a little pontoon. We've got a little marsh here. Let's build a pontoon. And we had fence posts and some planks, and we used really old-fashioned methods of just a simple plumb line, and you know, like a, a clear hose with water in to find our levels and a pencil. And together we created this lovely pontoon, pretty much the technology that the Romans would have used. And there was something lovely about doing that because the sense of achievement and you know, a project you've done together. And I think that's one of the things that we've got out of lockdown, maybe a, a sense of a bit more community, but also getting back to some basic things again. You know, we couldn't go out, so being in the garden, looking at nature, that reconnection, I think that's really important. And I think the reconnection with nature, a lot of us have lost that through our busy lives. And the reason I asked about you being out in the wilderness, reconnecting, living the buses, reconnecting with nature being really important, because I think it's important to plug people back into natural systems because we're so far removed from it. But I want to know is how you went from being then in these buses, traveling around Europe, traveling around the UK, then to starting your own eco electricity company. Well, <laughs> it took a while. It's a big jump, isn't it? But I mean, what was the pro? How many years did that take? Okay, so look, the way it started, I was parked on this hill, 1991, outside Stroud, little windmill on my roof. And when you live that way, you are connected to nature in a way that you're not when you live in a house. I knew when I parked somewhere windy because my windmill went around and my battery got charged. You know, there's that connection. It goes back to your point. I think too often we just flick switches and turn on taps and the stuff comes. We don't know where from or how. and We don't value it either. But anyway, there was me connected to the wind on this hill. And I saw the first big wind farm built in Cornwall. I went and had a chat to the farmer, saw these big windmills and knew that it was possible. And I thought, well, why not drop back in and try and build a big windmill on this hill? Because I could live another 10 years of this kind of low impact lifestyle myself personally, or I could drop back in and try and make a bigger difference. So I decided to do that. And it did take five years to build that first windmill. But I started with nothing, no money, no training, no knowledge, and all that kind of stuff. And I took on every piece of the challenge myself. The first was data collection. I needed to build a 30-meter mast to capture the wind speed to prove that the site was viable. Then it was planning. Then it was grid. Then it was finance. And then finally construction. So it took me five years to build it. By the time I built it, I was thinking about building more and the local power company were monopoly buyers of energy at that time. And they laughed at the idea when I went to meet them and asked if they wanted to buy some green energy. They laughed at the idea. They said, what even is it and who wants it? That kind of stuff. But just then, Margaret Thatcher was liberalizing the energy industry and it was possible to become an energy company. So, you know, I wrote an application for an electricity license to Ofgem. It was back of pack, pack, pack of stuff, really. Got the license, studied the grid for a year, and then launched 1st of April 1996. The world's first, actually, very first green energy company offering green energy from a local landfill site where the methane was being captured to a local college. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? But when you explain it like that, you know, oh, it's quite straightforward. But the amount of doubters you would have had to gone through at the time, because... In those early years, when you talked about environmental issues, the first sort of discovering about deforestation and things like this, and there was various concerts, and then it went away again. But people were seen as sort of, oh, he's just a greenie. You know, he's just one of these lefties. Or there was no gravity to the situation in terms of environmental degradation. But you had to navigate through all those naysayers at the time. Yeah, I did. And I didn't mind that. 
didn't bother me at all. You know, I think as well at the beginning, I thought to myself, there are two directions here, two models. I could present green energy as a charitable cause, a worthy thing that people should pay more for, or I could present it as a simple business proposition. And I thought the business proposition had more legs and would have more credibility. And it kind of goes to your point, you know, I think green stuff has been seen as an expensive, altruistic thing that we need to do. And and I don't believe that, well, I think that's very unhelpful. In fact, I think we need to present green issues as actually economically vital. And I think we're seeing that today more than ever. Businesses piling into this sector because they see the opportunity. They also see the need to change their business practices. Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, one of the biggest corporate capitalist funds in the world, just last week said it's not about being woke, him pursuing climate-saving businesses. It's a business opportunity. He's in it to make money. And, you know, when the capitalists see the opportunity and the benefits of a green economy, then we have a real chance of achieving one. Yeah, it's interesting, the importance of the environment to the economy, because I think for a lot of money men, for a lot of accountants, it's like, how's that tangible? You know, the idea of going, well, that rainforest is worth X or that marsh is worth this or that stag beetle is worth X amount to the economy. It's a really hard thing to monetize the importance of the environment to actually say well, what's it actually worth but until we do that it's very hard for governments to put any value to it which is so frustrating because we all know the value of a healthy environment because you can't grow food if you've got an unhealthy environment <laughs> that's right and you have weather that you can't endure you know it interferes with life you know extreme weather we're seeing that increasingly now so i think the impacts of an unbalanced climate are very clear. Insurance companies have been ringing the alarm bells probably for two decades about this. Lord Stern published a a seminal piece of work maybe a decade ago that showed that actually it was cheaper to fight the climate crisis with green measures, green energy, that kind of stuff, than it was to let it happen and carry on with our fossil fuel kind of burning habits. It was actually cheaper, better for our economy. And, you know, that's a fundamentally different outlook to the one that we're normally presented with, where green stuff is about giving stuff up, And it's an altruistic kind of cause that we need to sign up to. That's a wrong presentation. And, you know, we don't take that approach at Ecotricity. We're very keen to show people that the green life we need to lead is not about giving stuff up. It's just about doing things differently. We like to say whether we're talking burgers, cars, football, or now even diamonds, there's a better way to do everything. And we're involved in all of those things. So Ecotricity then, so tell me what you provide to the general public. So if people want to sign up, what would they do? Well, we're... um, energy company we provide electricity and gas we build green sources of both we've been building for 25 years i think in wind energy we built britain's first solar project 10 years ago we're building britain's first green gas project from grass right now it's going to be in reading and so our first focus was on energy because when i dropped back in in the early 90s i became aware that it was the biggest single cause of carbon emissions and therefore climate change and i thought it made sense to start with energy In the early 2000s, I went looking for the second and third biggest on the same logical basis and found it was transport and food in that order. And that the three of them, energy, transport and food, are 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint. And I thought that was a compelling fact. It's about how we power ourselves, how we travel and what we eat. It's not more complicated than that. And we all make choices every day. We spend our money on things that determine which way the world goes round. So we moved into transport. We built an electric car in about 2008, Britain's first, the Nemesis, when you couldn't buy one in the world, actually. And off the back of that, we built the electric highway, probably the world's first national charging network for electric cars. 
In order to enable early adopters of electric cars to get up and down the country, you know, it's super important to do that. We wanted to kickstart a revolution in transport. That's well underway now. We sold the highway last year to make room for other things. And we're involved in food as well. We make plant-based school dinners. You can see our work in food, mostly though, Forest Green Rovers, where we're legendary for being a vegan football club. And then most recently, we started making diamonds from atmospheric carbon. It began as a carbon capture and storage concept, thinking about how to get carbon out of the atmosphere and how to lock it up permanently. And of course, a diamond is the most enduring form of carbon that we know. That's incredible. You're like a whirlwind, environmental whirlwind. And you've, you've taken, you've had these three pillars. So you've got power, transport and food. So they were your three driving forces. To be ecologically minded in those worlds is very, very difficult, you know, particularly when it comes to transport cars, the world of cars, because the car that you've built as well, it's a beautiful looking car. It's very flash looking like sports car, beautiful. And you had an electric motorbike. I remember being in the pub and saying goodbye to you and you shot off in silence (laughs) on a a scrambler. Yeah, but they're all very macho worlds, aren't they? And then sport itself. But Tell me about the diamonds. So you're making, you sound like a Bond villain. So you're making diamonds. (laughs) How does that work? Well, essentially, we grab carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We mix it with some other gases that we make ourselves. We have only four ingredients in our entire process, the wind, the sun, the rain, and atmospheric carbon. And we turn all of that into jewelry-grade diamonds. The the diamonds we make are, in terms of quality, amongst the top 1% in the world of mined diamonds. But we do all of that without the environment impact of earth mining. We like to think that we mine the sky instead. And we take something we have too much of, and we make something we quite like to have. And, you know, it fits perfectly with our mantra, if you like, that, that living this green life that we need to live, it's essential that we do, is not about giving stuff up, whether it's burgers, cars, football or even diamonds you know we just have to find a better way to do stuff and so our diamonds are not low carbon or carbon neutral they're actual negative carbon it's the first industrial process in the world that puts out cleaner air than it takes in and it's carbon negative by design and i think that's exactly how we need to be in the 21st century to unwind all of these problems that we've created we call it sky diamonds i'm super excited took seven years of r&d to create the process and we put them on sale about a month ago so Great fun. Wow. That is incredible. So you can be green and still be bling. Absolutely. We like to think of it as climate bling sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is just genius. What seems a very simple solution, but actually getting there is taking so much research and development. What's the next big thing for you? What are you, I mean, you're making diamonds, electricity, the cars, all these things. What's the next, but what about politics? You ever thought about politics? Yeah, it's crossed my mind because I think it's the missing link. If you look at what we need to do to solve all of these crises, it's just two things. Stop burning fossil fuels and stop industrial animal farming. It's actually quite simple. We've got all of the technology we need in renewable energy, electrification of transport, and plant-based food doesn't need technology, just needs a mind shift. And if we all go plant-based, we free up 75% of global farmland, which is a vast amount of land we've taken from nature, and that unwinds the wildlife crisis at the same time. And so we have all of the technology we need. We know what we need to do. We have the imperative to act. We can see that the evidence is overwhelming. What we lack are politicians that get it, not just say they get it, but actually get it and are doing something about it. So it's crossed my mind, definitely. Would you form your own party or would you join the Greens? Or No, 
No. There's no time for that. Well, I'm a member of the Labour Party, so, you know, if I got into politics, it would be as a Labour politician. But not as a politician, I should say. You know, I have no desire to have a career in politics. I have no desire to be a politician in the kind of conventional definition of that. I would get in to get a job done and get out again. And the job would be to set us properly on a zero-carbon path. So, listen, Dale, it's been, as ever, fascinating. And the reason I get inspired by you and I read a lot of things that you talk about and I follow on Instagram is that you are one of these people that rather than sit there on a bar stool going, well, this is what you need to do, you actually just get on and do it. And I think, you know, if people agree with your ethos or not, whatever, the ability to go, do you know what? I'm just going to get on and make a difference. And if we all had an element of that, it would be a different world. Mm. Yep, I can see that. And I, I want to say that people do agree with me eventually. Sometimes it takes a decade, <laughs> sometimes it takes two. <laughs> but... Well, you keep knocking out those diamonds, my friend. <laughs> There's going to be a long queue of people. But it's genius solutions to massive problems. Yeah. And communication is key as well. You know, the genius solutions are important, but it's the way that we communicate the life change that we have to make. We've got to present it for what it actually is, which is positive. It's a better way to live. And it happens to solve problems at the same time. Brilliant. Dale, thank you ever so much. Thank you for coming on and chatting to me. Pleasure. So guys, that was Dale Vince. Interesting, interesting man. He sees problems. He creates solutions. His whole business is around creating solutions and living on the greener side of life. You might not necessarily agree with everything he says, but he gets up and does stuff, which I love. Now, I'm back here with my Gloucestershire old spots. They look happy as Larry. All the girls are here, heads down feeding. Hey, I've got to say the boar has gone back to the pig hut. He is absolutely knackered, he's fast asleep. Nice one, fella. So listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, Please make sure you rate and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify. It really does make a difference to us. It helps people that haven't joined the gang yet find us. So hopefully I'll see you all again for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 